the government should own everything. Right. And that solves the tragedy of the commons, right? Yeah. So, so they yeah. can fix the incentives, right? right? No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Human Reaction. We are so excited to have a special guest in studio with us today, Kat Dwyer, Marketing and Media Manager for the Property and Environment Research Center. How are you, Kat? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do and what it is that Perk does. Yeah. Um, well, as you said, I'm Kat Dwyer. Um, I work in marketing and comms with Perk. Um, and uh, Perk is a 43-year-old uh, conservation organization. Uh, we've been based in Bozeman all 43 years. Um, and we approach conservation from sort of a different angle. Um, we are traditionally the home of free market environmentalism, which some people say is an oxymoron. Um, and, and we will prove that it is not an oxymoron. Um, so Perk has, uh, we work on land, uh, water and wildlife issues. And our approach is to bring uh, voluntary uh, market-driven solutions to conservation challenges. Blasphemy. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds entirely like an oxymoron, right? Yeah. Well, it's not an oxymoron. It's actually how it was done for centuries until all of a sudden the progressives came along and said, only the government can do this. And now we right. have the current paradigm. Really? We can blame this on Woodrow Wilson also? Uh, well, um, <laughs> most no. things can be. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, okay. Teddy I was going to say, we so need to have like a tally on the wall of like things we can blame on Woodrow <laughs> yeah. Wilson. Dun, 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 dun. But dun, the dun. same era, basically. <laughs> sure. Like, same people. <laughs> Well, yeah, same philosophy, right? Which is that if you put really smart people in charge, mm -hmm. they'll manage the environment better than all the evil corporate interests. Right. So if that's the opposing view, what's what's Perk's view? Uh, Perk's view is that um, the status quo government top-down approach um, certainly has accomplished things, right? Um, however, it um, is often inefficient uh, and it's often divisive. So um, our goal is to kind of, rather than a top-down approach, our goal is to have a more collaborative bottom-up approach where we can, um, instead of demonizing landowners as the problem, we wanna bring them in as partners in conservation. Um, and we recognize that, uh, especially in a place like a state like Montana, um, with lots of private land and lots of private open space on those private lands, um, that a lot of good conservation work is happening there and can happen there. Um, and if we can bring in these private individuals as partners, we can get more of that conservation done on the ground. Um, if you can attract more flies with honey, uh, right. than with vinegar or whatever that I saying that's is. How it goes. <laughs> stick. <laughs> yeah. Carrot and stick. Right. Yeah. Um, and so if you, if government regulations, um, uh, make conservation a burden on landowners, you're going to get less conservation. Um, if you can incentivize it and reward them for that, you're going to get more of it. So that's that's our approach. What's a good example of instituting that sort of set of incentives and how it's made something better? Yeah. Um, well, so I guess this is a little bit different than the private lands topic, um, but something that Perk kind of something that put Perk on the on the map uh, initially, like 30 years ago. Um, again, we're a 43 year old conservation organization, but, but roughly, you know, 30 to 40 years ago, we um, were doing research on uh, ITQs or catch shares um, in, in fisheries uh, in the Atlantic. And um, prior to ITQs, the, the problem was 
Uh, these waters were being overfished. It was kind of a classic tragedy of the commons issue. Um, and the government solution was to uh, limit the the amount of time and the the days when fishermen could actually fish those waters. Mm. And what and that created a perverse incentive. What it actually led to was higher concentration of fishing, but in particular windows rather than spread out over a longer period of time. Um, and so Perk and other groups had researched uh, the idea of basically um, attaching property rights to uh, a fisherman's allowable catch. So each fisherman was given a particular share that they were allowed to catch. Um, and, and that incentivized them, sort of that pro quasi property right, incentivized them to um, not overfish those waters, but instead, you know, uh, basically conserve it as best as they could to ensure that they over time would be able to get more profit from, you know, catching more fish. Um, and, and then they also were able to uh, trade those quotas. Um, so instead of having just the biggest fishing outfit with the most resources being able to outcompete smaller fishermen in those short windows of time that the government had mandated, um, now the smaller operations were able to uh, be compensated by trading their quotas with the larger outfits. So it just created um, kind of a more sustainable uh, uh, model. And it also gave, again, it gave those fishermen um, a greater stake and a greater incentive in conserving those waters to ensure future profits. Mm. Interesting. It sounds like, uh, is it correct to say that it sort of took them from competing directly to almost more collaborating to preserve the resource? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. And it also um, it also encouraged more um, the ability to trade um, fostered voluntary exchange in a way that, again, yeah, led to more collaboration rather than just um, the competition that drove that accelerated overfishing. Right. And it, but they're still competing for the fish. Of course. Yeah, they're still competing right. and competition is good. Sure. But um, but yeah, it, it, it created more collaboration but because um, they didn't own the future of it. They had no reason to calculate the present to the future. Right? Sure. Well, right. I guess w maybe what I'm trying to get at is it almost shifted their mind frame from this is a zero sum game where there's X amount of fish and I have to get as many of those fish for myself as I can to, you know, grow my own business ver versus, okay, the pie is actually going to grow if we collaborate and make sure that we don't overfish and, you know, we're producing more of the resource that we all need. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, exactly let's right. explain the tragedy of the commons because that yeah. explains this as a you know thought experiment of what we're talking about. So what's this tragedy of the commons? You're, <laughs> you're an econ grad, right? Sure. Yeah. Yes, I am. Um, yeah, I guess the, that concept is that um, when there are public resources that aren't actually owned by any one individual, uh, there's no incentive to, to the point you were just making. There's no incentive to consider the future potential use of that resource. There's only incentive to extract whatever value there is from it today. Um, and and ultimate, that can lead to overgrazing, that can lead to overfishing, um, et cetera. Uh, and so by attaching water is a good example of this. By attaching um, property rights to water, for example, there's an incentive to conserve that water resource rather than extracting as much of it as you can in the short term to benefit whatever your immediate needs are. You are taking a more long-term perspective to ensure that there's that future resource. So the government should own everything. Right. And that solves the tragedy of the commons, right? Yeah. So, so they yeah. can fix the incentives, right? right. No, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Oh, you don't understand. Uh, when I'm doing um, interviews, I'm the devil. Like right. I just, come out, I just I, all I do is just put, take up the other side because that's funner, right? 
That's more, good. Right? Right. And you yeah, are the devil of Montana of, politics, so now true. you're just oh man. <laughs> more broadly, the devil yeah. of uh, of this podcast oh, too. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, uh, so yeah. Why not? Why not have the government just control everything and allocate resources? That way, we don't have a tragedy to come. Right. Well, I think my mind immediately goes to uh, Hayek's knowledge problem and the idea that. Um, there's no possible way for a government bureaucrat, especially one centered in Washington, D.C., not actually locally, wherever the conservation issue is, um, to have enough knowledge to properly allocate that resource. Um, and so inevitably there are inefficiencies um, and waste associated with that approach. Mm. Um, and as I said before, it also it ends up. Um, government solutions ends up pitting people against each other because there's it's usually reduced to this sort of binary problem where like in California with the water issue there there are there's ag that's the problem that's using too much water and then there are um you know the delta smelt that they're trying to conserve which they haven't actually had any evidence of delta smelt in in the delta in California for in the San Joaquin Delta for like decades. So anyway, we were like diverting okay. tons of water every year, especially after California just had this record water year. They diverted, I think the majority of it just flowed right out to the Pacific in an effort to conserve this fish that doesn't actually exist. Um, wait, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay, hold on, hold on. What's Delta smelt and what is, go back and re-explain this because I, I lost the, the plot here. Sorry, yeah, I the just, I digress a, a little bit. Yeah. The Delta smelt is this tiny little microscopic fish that is not native to California. Okay. Uh, and um, I believe it's it's listed as endangered and so under the Endangered Species Act. And so it has lots of federal protection over it. Um, and it is one of the primary reasons why, uh, I don't have the exact metrics on the top of my head, but um, lots of water is diverted um, from agriculture and, and just, you know, rivers and dams and whatnot. Um, and actually just flush straight out to the Pacific ocean every year to keep like stream flow flowing. Wow. Um, and anyway, so, but sort of, I brought that up as an example of where, um, the government solutions and these heavy handed regulations end up pitting people against each other, mm. um, in a way that, uh, doesn't build, doesn't foster collaboration at all um it just it divides um and it creates and you end up getting into these sort of stalemates where you know uh the farmers feel like they've been labeled you know sort of the villains and they're not interested in trying to conserve the species because it only brings costs to them um and the environmentalists have no interest in working with uh the the landowners or the farmers because they've been labeled as the bad guy so mm. it's um Whereas Perk's solution to that would be, rather than the government solution, it would be to um, allow uh, water markets to flourish. So changing sort of regulations around the ed edges, changing what is considered uh, beneficial use, which is what um, determines uh, how you're allowed to use your uh, water right. Um, and by, by making a couple tweaks there, you can uh, foster water markets where water rights owners can actually barter and trade their water and they would be willing if they're compensated for conservation purposes to trade their water. We've seen that work in, in states like Utah and even here in Montana. Um, and so that, that fosters a more collaborative approach where you can actually get real tangible conservation benefits um, and, and still have uh, the farmers be compensated in a way where they can benefit and uh, conservation can benefit. So it's mm. mutually beneficial rather so than a zero-sum game. So in this case, you'd have like uh, probably nonprofit, I would guess, environmental mm -hmm. organizations would raise money, say, we got to save this fish to then buy water rights from the farmers so that they can divert that 
water yeah. to the oceans to save that fish. Right? Yep. That's the idea. Yeah. And, and it, what, what's interesting there is, is, is how prices play a role mm -hmm. in helping us negotiate the competing values of individuals as a group, right? So what's objectively the better thing? Cheap food for the poor or saving a fish that's endangered? Right. Right. How do you decide what is the greater value? Well, when you have prices, people will then have to actually give something up to signal in the real world what that value is. Right. It's one thing just to say, well, obviously the fish or obviously the other thing. But when you have to actually sacrifice for it, then you realize what your real values are. It's called revealed preference versus internal preference. This is a Zessian idea. Hmm. So your internal preference is an ordinal list of things that you care about. But you don't really care about that thing until you go out and you actually do something about it. You like Crest toothpaste or you like the other one, you know, Arm and Hammer or whatever, right? You might have a list, but then when you go to the store and you see that Crest is 25% off, maybe that internal list changed, so you buy Crest, right? Same thing here. But we also decide that as a group, we decide as a group that the fish or maybe agriculture is more important. Right, and prices act as a signal to communicate those preferences. Mm -hmm. So That's the beauty of the marketplace as opposed to government regulation, right? Because the government, now it's a democratic fight. Now we have to literally change the democratic stronghold of California to change the trajectory of this decision, while if it was a market-based process, that decision would be made faster and more congruent with people's internal and external values mm -hmm. it, with their trade-offs that they're willing to make to make that uh, objective happen. Yeah, and it's, it's very right. easy for people to kind of virtue signal and outsource their feelings about these things to government control. But at the end of the day, if you actually have like a real price structure and defined property rights, you start to see like it reveals the truth of how people actually feel about these things, right? Oh, yeah. Imagine if uh, instead of targeting agriculture, which I understand why they do, it uses the vast majority of water. But imagine if it was residents in San Francisco or L.A. that had to make dramatic cuts to preserve this fish that doesn't exist. You know, I mean, they, their preferences would be revealed, right? Mm -hmm. And they would probably vote differently. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And I will just say, to be completely fair, Another problem with the particular California water issue and the farmers there, uh, water is also heavily subsidized there. So if it was priced fairly, again, that would communicate information in a way that probably would lead farmers not to grow like water intensive almonds in the Central Valley, which is mm. uh, drought ridden often. Um, and so... Prices could yeah. do a lot of good. Yeah, yeah, like like, um, <laughs> like grazing rights in Montana, for example. Ag, ag, big ag gets tremendous opportunities to be able to use public lands at sub-market rates. Yep, right. that's true. Yep. Right. So, then, so then it creates the incentive to basically use the government land rather than use private land and, mm -hmm. and all those sorts of things that, um, you know, don't necessarily create the best environmental, like, results. Well, I will say... Um, I mean, I'm like a quasi anarcho-capitalist, so I'm like, don't really want any kind of government subsidies at nice. all. However, I will say those grazing lands, um, you know, the BLM owns, I wish I had this number off the top of my head, but- um, This is the Bureau of Land Management, not yeah, Black Lives sorry. Matter. Right, oh yeah, <laughs> I know, we live in a new it's era. It's a weird way, I can, for months yeah. after Black Lives Matter started, I was like, why right. is everyone so upset about the BLM <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. It's a new area. I have to make that distinction. The Bureau of Land Management owns, you know, like millions of acres of land across the U.S. And uh, those lands do need to be managed. And, um, you know, there's an argument about different grazing practices and regenerative agriculture is really popular right now. And I think there's some debate about um, how much value it adds. Um, but the those lands, uh, grazing overall does have a lot of conservation benefits in terms of, I mean, even just like wildfire prevention, like keeping those grasslands, um, 
uh, reduced or not reduced isn't quite the right word, but um, keeping the grass itself sort of uh, from being overgrown is important. Um, the cows pooping and stomping on the dirt is good for the soil. Like, so, you know, grazing isn't necessarily bad for conservation. Oh, in sure. Many I was trying it's... to claim that to be clear. Okay. I was, what I, my, my biggest thing is it's, it frustrates me to have um, the, the grazing leases be so below the market rate because then there's no incentive for private producers to lease out their land, right? Because they're never, they're never going to be able to bid up to the private land owners, not to mention that the people with the best, you know, government arrangements and who have been doing it the longest, most likely ones to get those leases. So it makes sure. a new ranch is harder to start. I have some friends sure. who try to start new ranches and it's like, you can't get on government owned land because they're all locked up with people who have had these relationships with government agents for a very long time who right. get these leases. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it becomes like a family legacy, you know, mm. and then you get like the Bundy case where, uh, you know, there's, and, and in many ways, like when you, you've raised multiple generations on the same piece of land in some ways that is, I can understand the sentiment that mm. that is your land. But yeah. Anyway. But it's not, it's literally but public it, but land it's not. that you yeah. have a lease for. <laughs> can you, can you elaborate on the Bundy case? What, oh, what is that exactly? I, uh, was it Tom Bundy? Was that his first name? Yeah. There's, this there's, is there's Nevada, right? Ted. In there's, Nevada. There's a yeah. bunch of Bundys, right? There's yeah, a there whole, were. It's a huge clan. Is Ted part of this Bundy clan or is that a different Oh, no, Bundy? you're right. No, I don't know if that... I there, think there was separate. a Ted Bundy, too, that's in part yeah, of the family. Yeah, it was but, back in like 2014, 2015, there was like a big standoff in Nevada. Yeah, and that yeah, was over yeah. grazing leases. Uh, they have a and ranch. And back taxes, I believe. Yeah, also yeah. that. They yeah. have a ranch right next to a bunch of public land. And if you're not from Montana, this doesn't make any sense why this would be such a big deal. But for those of us here... It's, it's a big freaking deal, yeah. uh, which is that there is, uh, they, they for a very long time had a relationship with the, with the government where they could lease their, their cattle to graze that land. And because of unpaid taxes or back taxes, the government yanked their lease and they were like, well, you're taking this land from us. And it became this huge. Wasn't there also some implication of an endangered species that inhabited the leased land that they wanted to protect? And so they told them to pull the cattle for that reason I as well. Yeah. It's like a horny toad or something. Yeah. Right? Yes, it was the horny toad. Was that's it a right. horny toad? Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. Okay, all right. So the government probably produced as many arguments as they could, sure. especially once it became highly political, where this became, if you're a Republican, you support the Bundys, you're a Democrat, you support the government, right. which, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not, uh, we're not here to cast like who was right in this situation, yeah. but the there's, there's no doubt that the perverse incentives of subsidized agricultural leases, like the government should do lease land on a market basis because land has a value that is exchanged value for money, right? And as soon as, as long as we subsidize agriculture, we can't know the real value of it, right? Because we're just, we're moving, we're, 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 we're creating a perverse incentive. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. I'm curious about uh, water rights. Um, so you said in Montana, you can trade them. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, water markets and water rights are complicated, right? And there's a ton of nuance that um, that uh, 
our water researchers could speak better to. But um, yeah, in Montana, the um, uh, conservation, leaving water in stream is considered a beneficial use. So groups like Trout Unlimited um, have uh, basically paid landowners, water rights holders, to leave water in stream during certain times of year for like, you know, trout spawning or something like that um, in order to benefit the fish populations um, and advance that conservation effort. And in exchange, they pay the the water rights holder and um, and they, you know, come up with an agreement that works for the landowner. You know, there's probably there's certain times of the year when they're depending on what crop they're raising or or what type of livestock they're grazing. It doesn't make sense to divert water. And there are other times when they could tolerate it. So having uh, being able to negotiate that way on a kind of individual to individual private basis and having that voluntary trade delivers an outcome where both sides win to some degree. They might not get everything they want, but they get something. Um, whereas the, go the government model of, you know, cutting off supplies or restricting the amount of water they can use, the landowner only loses in that situation. Um, so again, Perk's perspective is let's try to foster more of these collaborative solutions uh, where everyone can win. Absolutely. So one of those like sticky questions where the government has a lot of control over is in, in, in the Endangered Species Act, what's kind of like the market-based approach to try to both have a reasonable like goals and ambitions for bringing back to endangered species, yeah. but then being able to at some point no longer do that Right, where where like it's it's actually becoming an impact. There's too many uh, wolves or bald eagles or whatever. Sure, yeah. Um, so a couple things on that. Uh, you know, the Endangered Species Act is a beloved piece of legislation that isn't going anywhere. It's the it's the you know kind of the constraints that we work within, and it's done a lot of good. I mean, ninety nine percent of species that have been listed haven't gone extinct. So that's that's something to celebrate. However, a lesser known data point is that uh, just 3% of listed species have actually recovered and recovered to the point where they can be delisted. So that's pretty. That's a pretty um, uh, dismal record of recovery. And um, you know, some environmentalists kind of ignore this fact today, but one of the original goals of the Endangered Species Act, it wasn't just to prevent extinction, it was to actually recover species um, fully so that they can thrive. Um, so, with that said, you know, we're not, you know, Perk doesn't want to do away with the Endangered Species Act at all. We just want to improve it so that we can get better recovery outcomes. Um, and one way to do that is to, uh, is to, is to partner with private landowners. And a reason for that um, is that two thirds of endangered species are found on private lands. So that's a majority of them. Their habitat is on private land, meaning private landowners need to be our partners in helping recover these species. Um, and habitat, habitat loss is the driving factor of um, species extinction. So it's really, really important that we, that we can foster more habitat on private land. And currently the way the law is structured and also just the way that it's implemented, which is a little bit different than how it's structured, mm -hmm. um, the, the incentives are all wrong. Um, so, so one example of that would be, um, what's known as, uh, the 4D rule within the Endangered Species Act, which sounds really wonky, but it's not that complicated. Basically when, when Congress first wrote this legislation, they said that, uh, threatened and endangered species should be treated differently. And, um, endangered ones should come with more strict regulations and threatened ones should come with fewer regulations. And the idea being if, you know, a landowner finds a threatened species on their property, they are incentivized to help recover that species because if they don't and it tips towards being endangered, they're gonna be penalized for that. 
and vice versa. If they are endangered, they'll be rewarded if they improve its status. Um, but then, so in 1973, that's how the law was written. That was the plan. By 1975, two years later, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service basically did away with that distinction and imposed what they call a blanket 4D rule. So they, they did away with the distinction and both endangered and threatened were treated the same. Um, and that gives landowners no incentive to recover species. In fact, it actually has led to uh, what colloquially is known as the shoot, shovel, and shut up approach, where if you find an endangered species on your property, get rid of it and Just, hope no fed saw. <laughs> otherwise, the government comes and... Yeah, yeah. And it imposes huge costs on you. Um, and and so one thing that PERC has been advancing, and this is where, you know, we... Um, we, we've got a couple different branches of what PERC does. Um, I'll digress slightly here. We um, are doing more field projects that are like truly free market solutions on the ground. And then we also have to work within the constraints of the government that we live with, right? So on the endangered species issue, um, we are just trying to improve that act. So we are working with the government to try to reinstate uh, the distinction, the original 4D distinction to create better incentives for landowners to actually recover species. And it's funny, you know, this is another, it's actually, this is a perfect example of how uh, another flaw with the government approach. Um, basically under the Obama administration, they didn't officially get rid of the blanket rule, but they, in practice, the Fish and Wildlife Service under Obama basically acknowledged that distinction and they did treat threatened and endangered differently. Trump came into office, he codified that and did away with the blanket rule and reinstated 4D, which we were excited about. Then comes in uh, Biden and he does away with the distinction and goes back to the blanket rule. So it's just, mm. you know, whatever can what can be done in one administration can be undone in the next. So you don't end up having permanent solutions to conservation. You end up having this political tug of war. Um, and you know, the species are just the species and they need to recover, right? Like they don't have a political allegiance. Um, and, and so they kind of get whiplash. Yeah. It needs sustained incentives yeah. to make the difference too. Like right. if you have right. only four years of good incentives, it's not enough time for a species to recover. Totally. Right. How yeah. do you stabilize that politically? What's oh, you got to pass code code. You, yeah. You got to be through it. Congress. Yeah. Congress has to say, this is how you do this. Right. And it has, the problem is I assume is that the executive branch's implementation isn't as clear in code that allows them to make this distinguishing interpretations. Yeah, I, I think that's right. There's there's um, ambiguity around these things that allows for it to be kind right. of monkeyed with. Because otherwise you could sue, right? Otherwise, Perk could say, you're not implementing this rule right and could sue the government to then get the rule changed, theoretically. Now, whether or not you would win in court, that's a different question because it's the government case, you know, judging its own case. But Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I will say litigation also now is a huge issue where, mm -hmm. you know, especially when it comes to delisting. I mean, that's probably a large reason why uh, the delisting rate is so low. Um, the grizzly bear is a really good example of this. Uh, that was listed in, I want to say 1975, I think. And, um, it had the, in our area, for example, uh, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, the goal was 500 bears. We're now at over a thousand estimated. Those bears are recovered. I'm sure you guys follow. There were three, at least maybe more recent attacks um, of grizzly bears. They are expanding their territory. That is going to lead to more human wildlife conflict. Those bears, those, the population here in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is by far like fully recovered. Um, and the service, the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has been trying to delist them since uh, 2005, I believe. So it's been about 18 years. Whoa. And But they get sued every single time. 
Classic. And so it's just so like. So what is the basis of the lawsuit though? That's what's always confused me is I've always, I've, I've been told that these environmental lawsuits happen, but no one's ever said how, okay, if the government sets the aim at a thousand or 500 mm-hmm. and it's hit that aim and then the government acts on that, what, what grounding of lawsuit do they have? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I know all the ins and outs of uh. what the standing is, um, but they, I mean, I think it's ultimately what really their argument boils down to is that uh, the state agencies cannot be trusted to manage these species on their own and that they need to, they can, they need federal oversight. I mean, that's what the argument boils down really? to in terms of legalese and what, like, wait a minute. So they you're telling to, me, I don't know. Uh, if Montana or Wyoming or Oregon or whatever delist an animal and the local people who actually have to live alongside those animals, uh, like grizzly bears, and if you ever had your kids out in the wild and you know it's grizzly country, it's nerve-wracking. Yeah. Very nervous. Uh, if you're out there and you actually pay that cost, you can't change it. You have to get some bureaucrat in D.C. change it because they're the ones who are actually qualified to make the distinction. Yeah. That's the theory. <laughs> How many grizzlies are there in D.C.? Do we know? <laughs> Maybe we should bus grizzlies yeah. to D.C. Let's, re- let's introduce grizzlies into D.C. <laughs> Governor Greg Gianforte, this is your opportunity to we pull have a DeSantis. <laughs> what? Could you imagine? <laughs> just, just letting them out in the White House lawn. Well, I guess, yeah, like, does this come down to like a, a Tenth Amendment states' rights type of fight of uh, just bringing it to the Supreme Court kind of a thing? Is, is that where this ends up going? So that the states can just kind of take control of this. I do think there needs to probably be uh, some type of fight between the states and the feds on this topic um, about like state management and sort of sovereignty over that. But um, I, to my knowledge, I don't I don't know mm. if something if a case like that has been brought yet. So is there a market? I mean, other than the what you've already described, a uh, way to kind of create an objective measure of the right amount of grizzlies and then regulate that automatically so that it's not this giant political question? Um, I mean, sure, you could have independent biologists that sort of study it and come up with, you know, I mean, the same biologists that are working for the government could give that information to private citizens, right? And there are ranchers that aren't, you know, uh, they're not managing entire ecosystems of grizzly bears, but they are um, implementing practices to help their livestock coexist and create more tolerance for grizzly bear to provide habitat for them. So there's sort of that type of private initiative on a small scale. Mm. Um, but again, I think, you know, we, uh, wildlife is, um, publicly owned, right? So that is, so it is managed by, uh, state and federal government and, and, you know, and that, that isn't going to change. And Perk doesn't advocate to change that. So one of, one of the things that is often, uh, kind of has the same dynamics of locals paying the cost while DC is like, trying to make the be decision makers but mm-hmm. they can't is in forest management specifically wildfires yeah what's uh what's perk take on that yeah um we have done a lot of work and a lot of research on this topic um and and our perspective is we just want to see healthy resilient forests um and we um, to kind of give a little bit of background, we've had basically over a century now of fire suppression policy since the big burn in 1910 which I don't know if y'all are familiar with that but I mean, a catastrophic wildfire that burned, you know, millions and millions. I think oh, I wish I had that number off the top of my head, like tens of millions of acres across um, Wyoming and uh, uh, Montana and Idaho and um, some other states. So case of the West was on fire and the smoke and the ash made it all the way to the East Coast. And it was, you know, it was a catastrophic event that really seared into the public's mind that wildfires are bad. And the Forest Service was relatively new at that time. And they were kind of looking for a mission. 
And after that fire, they got their mission, like fire suppression, preventing wildfires was the service's goal. Um, and I think, you know, they meant well, but what we've learned over the last century is that that approach, suppressing all wildfires, has totally disrupted natural fire cycles. Wildfire is an important part of a forest, uh, forest health and a forest ecosystem. Um, it helps in regeneration and it helps with uh, soil health. Um, and so we've created these really uncharacteristic conditions in our forests where they're overly dense. Um, and I'll just qualify that with, you know, there are different types of forests. A redwood forest is different than a ponderosa pine forest. They have different burn cycles. Some burn on 50 year increments, some burn on 10 year increments. But in general, they are overly dense because of fire suppression. And um, all of that deadfall produces fuel for wildfires. So now what we're seeing in the past, historically, naturally, we had more wildfires, but they were less intense and they were sort of ground fires. Today, we are seeing uh, sort of larger, hotter wildfires because there's more what are known as ladder fuels that bring the fire up into the canopy or the crowns of trees. And those fires are burning so hot that they're actually, they're like, uh, they're disrupting the process of regeneration. They're decimating soil health. Um, and so uh, they've become, they're no longer beneficial. So these dense forests, not only are they more susceptible to wildfire, but also disease and infestation um, and drought. So Perk's role, and again, this is, these are public lands. We want them to remain public. Perk is not about privatizing public lands. Kyle um, is though. <laughs> we are not um and so we want we you know we we have to work with government to come up with this solution but again we want to reduce some of the regulatory and litigious burdens that prevent the forest service from doing the work that they need to do and the encouraging thing is i mean i remember even five years ago the argument was still like the predominant argument was you know we don't touch forests and if you do you're logging and you're clear cutting and that's bad and dangerous Today, there's pretty much a consensus amongst uh, forest managers and ecologists and you know practitioners that um, we do need active management, which looks like selective thinning and prescribed fire. And um, But there are regulatory roadblocks that stand in the way of getting that kind of work done. So PERC is trying to work to reduce some of those barriers. And I can go on about what those are if you're mm. interested, but. <laughs> I, I pulled up the numbers that you were looking for on the big burn. It's yeah. 3 million acres, okay. approximately the size of Connecticut. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's how big that was. Yeah. Jeez. That's Burned a big entire one. towns down. Yeah. 87 people dead. And that's, a, and that's a single fire. Whereas like this year, I think we're approaching 2 million acres burned in total across the United States. So for one fire to be more than that, like you can imagine that. It, was it says pretty... it only lasted two days. Yeah, it was yeah. Holy a devastating yeah. thing. Two days? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank God the region wasn't that developed at that point in no, time. Yeah, it was 1910. There's nothing yeah. out here, really. Right, right. right. Yeah. Wow. Pause we'll for the cause. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. What are the barriers that Perk is trying to... Yeah. Um, so one of them is um, sort of the review process for getting this type of work done. So anytime you're going to go into the public 
onto public lands to try to do active work, you have to go through um, the NEPA process, the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, which has good intentions to sort of slow you down, think it through, think about the ecological effect of what you're doing. That's all well and good. Um, but of course, it's full of uh, bureaucracy and red tape, and it's become a problem and a hindrance in many ways. Um, and so we actually released a report a year ago uh, looking at NEPA data. And what we discovered was that it can, uh, for selective thinning and prescribed fire projects, from the time the review process starts to the time work can be done on the ground, uh, it, NEPA, that process, can delay those projects by 3.7 years for mechanical thinning and then almost five years for prescribed fire. And those are like the averages on the low end. If you have to do uh, the most stringent type of review and environmental impact statement under NEPA, those averages click, tick up to closer to five and seven years, respectively. And then all of these projects get litigated, of course. Um, and when you add litigation into the mix, that adds an average of two years onto the projects. So there are some, like in our backyard here in Bozeman, uh, the Bozeman Municipal Watershed Project, that has been delayed by 17 years. And that goal of that project is to uh, basically create a fire break between uh, the Custer Gallatin National Forest and then in our water supply. Um, and if if a fire were to rip through there, the city did uh, an estimate like a decade ago that we would have about three days worth of drinking water if a fire ripped through our watershed. So there's really good reason to get this work done. Um, and the Forest Service went through, they worked with the city, they went through the NEPA process, they dotted every I, crossed every T, and they have been sued so many times, and they are finally now starting to do work, but they were sued for so long. Um, multiple times. They would finally get through one uh, litigation, start the process, get sued again. Um, and so that it was delayed by about 17 years. So who's suing and what are the grounds for their suit? Because it seems like it would be a really bad deal for that to happen. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I don't know if I should name names because they're, they're locals here in town. Name them. <laughs> they're, 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 they're doing this thing, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, totally. like, come on. Uh, the Cottonwood Environmental Law Center is one. I knew it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and we, you know, we want to work with those guys. So, you know, I, but we disagree on this issue and, um, yeah, they've sued. Um, I don't know if they're the only one that has sued on that project, but they, they have. They're one of the leading litigants. Um, and their argument is that uh, doing that type of restoration work would disrupt um, uh, wildlife habitat. So this is actually where the Endangered Species Act and then forest management policy kind of intersect. Um, so most of the time when these projects get sued, it's because there's some type of endangered or threatened species that has habitat in that space. And so they sue on the grounds that you would be, you know, um, disrupting the habitat and infringing on the yeah, ESA. A hundred thousand people right. wouldn't have water. <laughs> right. Yeah. You need water to live. Well, and not only that, um, there was an example in Northern California where uh, same sort of thing. Forest Service was trying to get restoration work done. Um, environmental activists sued because on the grounds that the work would disrupt the northern spotted owl habitat and the project was delayed by um, several years I think I think about 10 years and uh, I shouldn't smile it's not funny it's terrible but it's a little bit ironic a wildfire ripped through the area and completely burned the wildlife habitat so, happened, you know, that's happened, the other risk. It literally happened <laughs> right. to Hungry Horse in Montana just a couple okay. of years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the same thing. And I, I knew you guys yeah. have been hunting that area for a long time. It was all matchstick timber fall. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was some really great spots. And now the place is just 
right. wiped out. And when that happens, and again, because these fires are burning so hot because there's so much fuel, um, you're, you're like destroying habitat for a long time. You know, it's not just while the fire is burning, it's after the fact, those species are going to go elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, I, you know, it's interesting as a libertarians, you'll probably appreciate this. It's, um, there's a tendency to think short-term I find on kind of the left. Right. And, um, and I think Perk's perspective, we take a kind of in that classic Austrian style, like we take a longer term perspective, right. About the consequences of these things. Um, and you know, provide, uh, another regulatory issue. That's a problem. Prescribed fire obviously emits smoke and particulate matter. The clean air act, the way it regulates particulate matter and, and, um, and pollution, it, uh, prescribed fire smoke counts towards that wildfire smoke does not count towards that so states have a particular amount of emissions they're allowed to have under the clean air act and because of the way it's regulated uh it often hinders fire managers from using prescribed fire and but if they were to use it they would be reducing the risk of a more catastrophic fire that would cause more pollution later on yeah let me explain this maybe slower for our for our for our city dwellers right you do have some people who who are not from the country like us (laughs) that means if you intentionally and safely burn it you're punished but if you let it burn everything to the ground in a wildfire it's not counted right meanwhile the wildfire burns orders of magnitude probably more right and carbon yeah. into the atmosphere more pollution than the prescribed fire ever would yes absolutely makes total sense to me yeah <laughs> so that's another thing perk has been working on we like yeah filed some public comments on because the epa right now is actually trying to um increase their particulate matter standards uh which would just make it harder to do prescribed burns so where that's another that's another way where like that's not a free market solution necessarily but we're trying to reduce some of the barriers to get good work done and on the there's, ground there's an interesting like conflict between like the climate change concern and the management of land concern yeah right that's going right. on not to mention the um management of land for humans to use mm-hmm. and management of land for animals right so yeah. like Bozeman exists uh, theoretically for the humans here, mm-hmm. not for the animals near the watershed that the humans need for water. And so, you know, obviously there's a perverse incentive to raise money to sue the government because then you could raise a lot of money and, and get a lot of bill time for lawyers to right. sue the government to, right. to stop this sort of thing to happen. Um, but beyond the political economy of that, there's the, there's the philosophical question, which is what is the purpose of the environment for humans or for animals? And how do we, how do we navigate that question? I think it depends entirely. Your, your perspective on that depends entirely on which tribe you associate with, right? I mean, the the degrowthers might say, "Oh well, it's not for us. We're a, we're a parasite on the earth, and we should preserve everything in its natural way and be as minimally impactful on it as we can." And that's you know has some merits, perhaps, but it is inherently anti-human, right? It is inherently saying we're all bad just for existing. So I I don't know. I don't personally prescribe to that or subscribe to that. Well, we know Kyle rather. does. Kyle, what's the right answer? <laughs> Wait, are you saying I'm a degrowther? <laughs> that's not true at all. No, no I just mean the, uh, the, 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 that's, that's how I see it. It's just fundamentally like a, it's like a first principles question that's never really asked or answered, which is, you know, what is the purpose? What should our orientation be to these questions of the environment? First principle, is it there to help people? Like, should our first priority be to help people? navigate the environment be safe in the environment like grizzly bears mm-hmm. should you be able to go walk through the woods you know it, you should carry bear spray on you but you're the 
should there be places where that it's unlikely I'm going to run into a grizzly bear or do we should have it to where they're that abundant? Uh, how to navigate that? The first principle is like, well, what's the, what are the woods there for? What's the trail there for? Well, yeah, like our, our goal should probably be, probably be to boost human quality of life, right? At the end of the day. And things like pollution are going to be things that drop our quality of life, but also things like cutting our food supply to be able to help this animal or that animal or whatever, like that's going to be something that also decreases our quality of life. Like that, that that's almost the lens that I look at these things through, mm. right? Quality um, of life first. Yeah. yeah. For humans. Otherwise we just descend and civilization dies if we, if we drop, right? But the degrowthers yeah. want that. And that, that's the problem is there's like this <laughs> yeah. weird resentful energy with right. the degrowthers of like humans are a plague. So right. uh, there's a lot of these people that they think that there's like a certain cap that of how many humans should be on the planet, right? But and, not a cap on other species though, because the other species are purely altruistic because they're not human. Is that the argument? <laughs> I, I guess. I don't Even think though a grizzly wants far. to eat your face. <laughs> There's a very like original sin type of argument yeah. that ha happens yeah. there. Like, it's oh, a very man. religious motif, right? Yeah. Totally. I think we're of nature. I don't think we're separate from it. I think we are of nature. And I think we are uh, endowed with an intelligence uh, that allows us to be stewards of nature. And I think we should be good stewards of it. Um, and in terms of like, managing species populations you know if we just our hands off well one they they would kind of manage themselves but if we're if there are examples of this where like you know when wolves have been eradicated out of yellowstone national park elk deer pronghorn etc proliferated well then they wound up there were so many of them they were overpopulated they started decimating cottonwood groves and then that disrupted habitat for birds and other species so the whole thing kind of got thrown off balance reintroducing the wolves helped restore that balance so there's a way in which humans can be um, and i guess that was kind of correcting an error because we had eradicated the wolves but there's a way in which we can steward these things just like with the forest management issue uh, the natural fire, fire cycles have been disrupted and forests are less resilient today because we screwed with that system. So restoring those forests is a way for us to kind of remedy that and restore more natural cycles. But again, we are of nature. And I think um, there's a way, I, I think thinking of us as separate from it is is dangerous because it then leads to sort of these calls for population control and some environmental policies that... Um, yeah, like the Delta smelt example. Is it really worth destroying the livelihoods of thousands of people in the Central Valley and potentially disrupting water supplies for a state of millions of people to protect an endangered fish that doesn't actually exist in the Delta? I don't know if that's the right trade-off, right? Like we, there's there are trade-offs that we have to think through. I need and my almonds. I need my right. almonds. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, people forget that California's a major agricultural state. Like they yeah. produce a mm -hmm. tremendous yeah. not, not almonds, but many other things too that are you know very in the, in the water problem. There is a substantial problem, not just for California, but the world. The higher cost of water is, mm -hmm. the more that goes into those inputs, the higher cost food is, right. and who pays the costs the food the most when it's expensive, the poor, right? So if you are an anti-poverty advocate, you should be advocating for ways to create better incentives for farmers in, mm -hmm. in these situations and for, and for environmental people to be able to get what they need. Right. right. Well, in, in history, we end up, there ends up being a lot of demonization of the farmers because of prices going up. And that's where you end up getting like 
the kulaks and you know the soviet union and things that are going on with the dutch right now because of environmental policies mm -hmm. there's a lot of rebellion that's starting to t take place right now so like there ends up being this like weird resentful energy that gets placed towards the farmers and it's like these are the people that are providing us with food <laughs> like this is how the food shows up in the grocery stores and it's all these policies that are being put in place that's making it more difficult for them to do their job properly mm. no we'll just have government subsidized lab grown meat and yeah we'll all be fine and then eat, eat the bugs <laughs> eat the bugs Eat the bugs. Have your UBM, your basic income. I like the lab grown meat thing, though. I think it's kind of cool. They're discovering I, that it's like really amazing. unhealthy. Really? It's so Darn highly it, processed. It's like farmed fish, right? Like yeah. the, the omega fats are way off. Like you're not getting the benefits Man. that you would otherwise get. Sorry. I was hoping it would be great. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe someday. But not yet. We'll get it. It's just a technical problem. We'll figure it out. I want to 3D print some steak or some <laughs> salmon, some sashimi in my office. Yeah, That'd be awesome. just some plastic steak right there. <laughs> yeah, that's good. This is Boy. a little aside, but did you guys see the Rolling Stone article a couple weeks ago about how uh, concern about seed oils is a right-wing conspiracy. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I see that. In I fact, do know what several right-wingers that are really into seed oil. <laughs> like into concerns. eating them? No, about, about oh. you know, that it's a plot by the globalists to feminized men or something like that. oh well i mean every, are everything for, is right they are bad for you though so you know yeah I, th anyway. I think that the at very least um you know keeping them in proportion with other foods is is probably the right perspective right everything in balance but with our diet as it currently stands you know seed oils are literally in everything and and right. as soon as you start looking for them you see that and you're like okay if there is a chance even a chance that this is not good for you it's in everything so mm -hmm. uh maybe maybe take some precautions well, one of the reasons why it is in the american diet specifically is because when the fda was created it was asked to create a recommendation for uh, the american diet not to mention agricultural subsidies go to wheat and many seeds way more than they do other kinds of you know uh, uh um parts of the pyramid. We also have evidence today that the FDA took bribes from big ag to create the food pyramid. Oh yeah. yeah. I've read that recently. Yes. Yep. So uh, I feel like that's not surprising. Like, yeah, I, right? I, I, I mean, feel like so I've heard that or no thought that for a long think time. Think about it. Nine to 12 servings a day of bread. <laughs> of bread? Yeah. <laughs> that was the idea. They're like, this is a great idea. And we wonder why obesity and diabetes are right. rampant. Right. Oh, right. Surprise. So, and not to mention like we, we also, we heavily tax our tariff, uh, sugars. So then that mm -hmm. creates all of the other problems with sugar, uh, because of a small industry in Florida, where all of our sugar comes from, it has a tremendous amount of political control on sugar because Florida is a very important political state and, uh, everything else we do in ag, I mean, it's all manipulated, uh, through a government process. I mean, the, the, the reason why seed oils are as prevalent as they are is because of government policy. I'm convinced of it because every, everywhere you look, you see the handprints everywhere. Yeah. yeah. For a very interesting take on this, our, our friend, uh, Griff from Zesty Beverages, which we're enjoying today, uh, did a, a piece in this studio actually about that and kind of appealing to people who might be looking more at the environmental side impacts of, of these crops. And he asked the question, you know, how much carbon or how much pollution do you think uh, comes from the the heavy heavy processing of of creating seed oils in particular right i mean they're that's one of the most highly processed foods that there is mm. right because you have to you have to take so much of the particular seed right and you have to press it and bleach it and and uh, deodorize it mm. and purify it and all the stuff and then the transportation it's it's quite a process mm. to to make it so if you're not into it for health reasons, uh, maybe be, be into uh, reconsidering it for environmental reasons, you know? There you go.
So climate change. That's the exception, right? And that's what I've been told anyway. So I, yeah, sure. The market can solve all these problems, but it can't solve climate change. So what, what is Perk's point of view on that? Well, I will say, uh, Perk, there are so many organizations that are working on climate change that Perk does not, that is not a focus of ours. Now that said, we work on land, water, and wildlife, and all of those things are affected by climate change. So in some way, indirectly, we work on it. Um, but it's not, we don't have like a particular official uh, sort of, um, it's not an initiative of ours. Um, I will say though, uh, similar to sort of how environmental regulation prevents us from doing the type of conservation work we know we need to do. Um, the environmental left is actually starting to finally kind of look side-eyed at uh, NEPA because it is preventing them from moving forward with renewable energy projects. Um, you know, when they want to like clear 30 acres in the desert of Southern California to put a bunch of solar panels in there and there's an endangered flower, which is a real case, um, they uh, get thwarted by, by the, both the ESA, Endangered Species Act, and NEPA. Um, so they're starting to try to, there's some movement building on permitting reform to kind of um, streamline NEPA mm. for those reasons. Um, so even on climate change, the government gets in its own way um, and can't classic. institute its preferred uh, solutions. It is classic to me to think like, you can't build a new apartment complex because of NEPA, but if you wanna build solar panels, then the lefties right. really get out there, they get very <laughs> upset. Well, and what about the the Atlantic coastal waters and all these windmills going up and the argument that like the the uh, jackhammering to build the foundations is like disrupting whales and like killing whales off the coast. Do you know anything about that phenomenon? Yeah. Or no? uh, again, that's not something like Perk is focused on. Yeah. Um, but I've read a little bit about that. Yeah. And it seems like there's, um, there are more biologists that are coming out and starting to talk about it. Um, and it is, I mean, it's a narrative that has just been completely, uh, silenced. It seems by the progressive left that are climate adv uh, advocates. Um, so, and, and the reality is, renewable energy is so heavily subsidized um, and it's become, you know, sort of another political weapon that those industries have a lot of political power and might behind them. Um, so it'll probably be a long time before anyone acknowledges any of the environmental degradation associated with that work, but it requires so much land and habitat. It has to disrupt wildlife habitat. So it is one of these issues that I think eventually will come to a head and cause some division within the environmental movement because it's, I mean, there are two conflicting things, right? Like in the name of saving future wildlife habitat, we're gonna disrupt current wildlife mm -hmm. habitat. Mm -hmm. um, and mm. really, I mean, it's an intermittent energy source that's very inefficient and requires baseload energy to be online all the time, which is also completely inefficient and will drive baseload energy out of business. Um, and so I, I mean, none of it is really a sustainable solution. And the idea that any of that is actually going to reduce global temperatures in a meaningful way is just sort of idiotic. So, um, it feels like it's a lot of tax money being thrown around and a lot of localized harms in terms of where these projects are started for not much benefit at all. I'm just wondering where the Save the Whales movement went. Why isn't <laughs> I know. Greenpeace out there and right. boats, you know? <laughs> I yeah. wrote a guest column some years ago because we, uh, we had a candidate who was running for U.S. Senate. Uh, and we have this coal-fired power plant in Montana that was running into some problems called Coal Strip. And uh, he basically got asked this question by a reporter, what are we going to do to solve Coal Strip? He said, oh, we'll just replace it with solar panels. No problem. <laughs> The square footage of the existing coal-fired power plant, which of which there are four different power plant units there that are producing 
coal, power, all the time, winter, all the sun's out, sun's not out, all the time, was relatively small. Like it's, uh, if you look at it on Google Maps, it's just like, you know, a couple miles, not even a square mile. I, I, I worked with an engineer we know named Cody uh, to uh, backwards step back how much, how many solar panels would be needed and how much square footage would be needed to replace the baseline power plant of just that one power plant. And it took up most of Bighorn County. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was an enormous, like yeah, I had to zoom way out on the entire map of Montana to like put in the square to demonstrate how big it was just to get the square footage to produce that much energy, much less only that much energy when the sun was out and yeah. it wasn't dark. So if you wanted that energy to be that, that base load, right, you would have to have an enormous battery bank to store that energy. That, that Which that even technology part of the doesn't even exist, well, yeah, really. They're yet. building it right I mean, now. they are, but like, but they're not... Oh, literally at this yeah, site where they're trying to do in this? Billings, yeah, okay. trying to build like a large power yeah. bank for all the wind and solar projects out in eastern Montana. Yeah. Um, but they, like, I don't know how successful they're being or how much they're relying on subsidies to make it happen. We'll have to find out. Yeah. Well, There's I, I, one in Monterey, California. There's like really? a big uh, battery power bank that has had, um, it's run into a, a lot of trouble. One being like fires that have broken out because of the the batteries. Uh, uh, we have Tesla's catching on, on fire. Right. What happens when a the enormous entire, yeah. battery bank catches on <laughs> right. fire? Right. Um, and the storage capacity is nowhere near what it would need to be to actually store the amount of energy to replace like a, you know, a natural gas plant or something like that. And what ends up happening is you have to have natural gas or coal there on backup. So you end up needing both. Mm -hmm. And because renewables produce, you know, energy intermittently, um, those cost-wise, I want to, I, I'm going to look into this at some point. I wish somebody had looked into it already. I would love to know the numbers on like sort of what it costs these companies to be online like that and how much profit they're losing when the market is flooded with energy from sol a solar field. Mm. Um, but they, ha they have to remain operational because they can't, you know, wind up and down in the same way that, uh, you know, uh, the, the other facilities can. So it's, it seems like a model they're dependent on these fossil fuel baseload energies, but I think in the long run, I don't see how it's economically viable for those for the baseload to like right. be to saddled with well, this energy. Yeah. That's yeah. what that's uh, that's why I'm going to say this. Richard Nixon was right. Yeah, yeah, he was wow. right. Yeah, what he should have done, <laughs> what we should have done is back in the 1970s when we were building nuclear power plants, we should have built a thousand more of them. Mm. And if we had, we wouldn't have nearly as much coal. We had nearly as much natural gas. We'd all be running on nuclear much like most of Europe was at that time. And the CO2 implications would not be there, wouldn't be a concern. We'd have concern with releasing more water vapor in the air than we currently do, maybe. Uh, and we would have the problem with rockets, which isn't a problem once you have rockets, of what to do with the nuclear waste, which is a way more navigable problem than what to do with all the pro perverse problems of rare earth mineral mining with, with, with yeah. these other questions or, or it doesn't, these are all, this was all program that already exists. That was already there. That's supposed to happen. That got shut down by the EPA and by the anti-nuclear folks who are also all of the climate change concerned folks. And we, we would have way less if we had just implemented that. Totally. And the anti uh, nuclear coalition was also funded by fossil fuels too. Awesome. Yeah, like in the 70s. And right. yeah, it was like Sierra sense. Club and like Big Oil that were like pushing to get rid of Makes complete sense. nuclear. But that is kind of, that's the only sustainable option, really. Yeah. Alternative anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to, I want you to clarify one thing you said about once you have rockets, what you do with the waste from a nuclear plant is resolved. Well, what, what do you, what do you if, do then? If you're really concerned about nuclear waste, 
launch it into space. <laughs> There's a lot of room out there, guys. Oh, we can get oh, it away just... from our environment. Oh, I see. Now you're just going to pollute space. That sounds like a... Oh, no. <laughs> we're, we're gonna you know what the sun gonna... is? <laughs> <laughs> it's a giant... It's a giant nuclear power plant. No, no, we're just going to dump our waste plant. on some other planet and let that and leave yeah. that planet. Yes. Okay, Dave. Yes. Wow. That's, uh, it's that simple. We put it on the moon or you launch it into the sun. You're such okay. a colonialist. You're, you're, you're going to pollute other species we're, in space. You, you want to produce energy without any waste? Like, that's the question is what what waste are you going to yeah. That's And that's ultimate. That's the uh, the not seeing the trade off. Thomas Sowell, everything has trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. If you want energy without trade-offs, you are engaging in fantasy land. Like mm -hmm. your, your energy is going to come from unicorn poop, right? You're not thinking through the actual trade-offs of real production in the real world like an adult. And once you are, it becomes very clear to me that nuclear fusion and fission are the best options. Totally. And the totally. waste isn't even that big of a problem. Like it can be pretty well contained in concrete and... Mm -hmm. It can be stored in, I think, what's the statistic? The All the nuclear waste in the U.S. today can be stored like a mile high in, on a football field. Like it's not actually that much waste. It can be consolidated pretty well. Meanwhile, solar panels and wind turbines have a life of about like 25 to 30 years. And then they're spent and they have to be replaced. And right now we don't recycle any of that. It just goes straight into a landfill. So, and it's, you know, obviously that waste is accumulating at a rapid rate, the more we employ this technology. So again, you know, it's, what is the trade-off there environmentally? It seems more environmentally friendly to contain it in a small secure space than to just fill landfills or ship it, you know, to Southeast Asia and pollute those nations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It yeah. ends up in the ocean. Right. right. As opposed <laughs> yeah. to the moon. Which we, I'd rather have it on the moon. <laughs> just saying. Well, you have to consider the beings that live on the moon and what they want, David. Right. Yeah, what about our space base on the moon? <laughs> Just, it's a pretty big place, the moon. I think we could fit both. But anyway, like, even even then, you're literally, it's like it's in a vacuum. It's not safer than in a vacuum where there's no air, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, that's a great idea. Just set it on a trajectory saying, for the sun. I think I have a great idea about nuclear waste. I agree with you, Dave. <laughs> well, I guess, look, I'm going to part with Elon. It'll be hard to sell, it. but... <laughs> I guess there lies the there kind of lies the question is like why is it that the progressive left's environmental movement is so anti-nuclear or or fission or any of these things like because it does seem like such a clear answer to all of these problems. I think there's just so much money behind uh, wind and solar that all the incentives are wrong. You know, like if government started doling out subsidies for nuclear in the same scale that they are for other renewable sources, I think everybody's tune would change. But Right now, that's the industry that's favored. So that's where the money is. So the Nuclear Energy Commission was formed. We were building nuclear power plants on a pretty regular clip. Since it's formed, we've built like five in decades. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So like it's like this crazy thing where we've regulated it more while we subsidize other things. While we've said there's a huge problem with carbon, mm -hmm. while you know the the trade-offs to these other things aren't really known in the beginning. Now that they're known, people are just ignoring it. We're at the ignoring it stage. Pretty soon, we're going to get to the having to actually have the debate about uh, renewables and what their trade-offs are. And then, and then you know, the Obama administration is the one who retasks the Nuclear Energy Commission to actually try to build nuclear power plants again. So we have new uh, fourth-generation reactors, I believe they're called, uh, being built in like Idaho, Wyoming, places like that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Montana was trying to get on that list, but we had too many old rules on the books that needed to be repealed first. Um, some of those have been repealed, uh, and other states across the West are trying to kind of get on the forefront of the next generation of nuclear reactors, which are smaller. They use less. They don't, not all of them even use uranium. They use other for, so, sorts of uh, um, of nuclear um, 
sorry, unstable isotope technologies to create, uh, and much more smaller form factors too, like a nuclear power plant is the size of this room, right? Which can power mm -hmm. orders of magnitude larger things than just a solar panel. Yeah, but uh, Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, right? Right. right. I, don't like, the... I don't like having Fukushima in that list. Why? Because if natural disasters are are less rare now, like, like at no, least they're they... not. They're more common because of climate change. As far as their impacts and costs are less now than they were in the past, right? In part because of the production of power and energy. Um, and you, and you compare it to one made during a you know one you know malfeasance by humans, right? Then that can happen at your your local. Um, coal fire plant can dump its ash pond into a river, right? Trade-off, right? Your uh, rare earth mining outfit could also dump into a river or pollute a forest or whatever. So each of these things are all possible for um, any, they're all trade-offs to any amount of energy production. Um, and, but Fukushima particularly is like a very, you know, rare and, and, and bad design, right? Putting the back of generators on the, in the basement rather than on the roof was a bad idea, right? For an energy, for a, given their proximity to tsunamis and the sea. Nuclear itself, just as a word, also has such a stigma around it because boomers spent their entire childhoods hiding under, like going through <laughs> drills, hiding under desks right. to protect themselves from the nuclear explosion that wouldn't kill them if they were under a desk, right? Yeah, but we are far closer to nuclear war right now. Right, than, because yeah. of the boomers, too, <laughs> ironically, <laughs> ironically. Yeah, that's true. We're an anti-boomer podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's it's just the, the elites of that era, absolutely. And then, but I mean, right, we're not afraid of it right now, but we are, I think that, I think you're right, that's still, there's still like a lingering fear. Stigma, yeah. About that, even though, even though right now we are, we're like Cuban Missile Crisis close and we're still yeah. like, eh. Well, it's just, and also just the eh. introduction of nuclear into like the, the public parlance came from a nuclear bomb going off or hydrogen right. bomb going off. So mm. like everybody just, when they think of nuclear, they think of that because they read about it in their history book. Maybe it needs to be rebranded. We'll just call it something call else. Call it something else. Yeah. Come up with a new name. Not a bad idea. Isotope power. There you go. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like Let's it. Start it. It's not yep. It sounds super technical power. and it sounds kind of cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> isotope power. <laughs> well, yeah. to, to bring things back a little bit to, to Perk's work, I want to I want to know more about the uh, about Perk's conservation innovation lab. What's that all about, and what are you working on? Totally. Um, so that is kind of a new branch of Perk. Um, we have so we started as a research organization. We were a bunch of dorky economists that loved the outdoors and we research we we're kind of economics first and we wanted to apply economics to conservation issues uh, we sort of evolved to be more of a conservation first organization but we still use sort of market principles to drive the solutions that we look for um, so we still have our research we have a lawn policy branch now and now we also have the conservation innovation lab which is where we do field projects on the ground um, and one that kind of ties into maybe a private solution for wildlife management, ESA alternative stuff. Um, we are working with a, uh, a landowner in the Gravelly Range um, to uh, basically implement new grazing practices to reduce wildlife conflict with grizzly bears. So where they're uh, there, it's a public land lease that they are on. Um, and there is a high concentration of grizzly bears in this area. So predation from grizzlies is a huge problem. 
And we partnered with a couple different organizations um, and this landowner to uh, help them implement different grazing practices. And it's actually really interesting. What they're doing is mimicking um, elk movement. So they're doing uh, higher numbers of cattle. There's safety in numbers, right? So they're doing more um, larger numbers of cattle, but they're grazing them for shorter periods of time and they're moving them more frequently. Um, and so they've actually already seen, um, they've seen some early like good results. Uh, I think so far this year, there's been one uh, predatory, you know, I, one attack, I guess you could call it uh, by a grizzly bear, one loss. Um, and the year prior before they implemented this new practice, there had been 19 total. Um, so that's a pretty significant decrease. Um, and of course, we'll have to continue to monitor it and see if that trend continues. Um, but it's it's innovative, it's interesting. Um, and the, kind of the purpose of these, these projects that we work on is not... Um, you know, we don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. We're experimenting. Um, but when we find a partner that's willing to do something pretty innovative, um, you know, we want to, we want to support that. So another one, um, that kind of relates more to our area, um, is our work in Paradise Valley, uh, which is just over the pass from Bozeman. Um, there that's a big ranching community. There's a lot of open land there. Um, and it's a Butts Yellowstone National Park and it is a natural migration corridor for ungulates and elk in particular. And in the winter, elk migrate out of Yellowstone National Park and they use these private lands as winter range. And um, the problem is for the landowners, they come with a lot of costs. They eat the same forage that their cattle eat. They knock down fences, which is super expensive to repair. Um, and then they also run the risk of bringing brucellosis, which is a disease that causes uh, both bison and elk carry it. Um, and it can cause cattle to abort their young. So, and if, a, if a herd is detected with brucellosis, the landowner has to quarantine the herd. It can cost them upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a big deal. And for a smaller operation, it can like, it can decimate their whole, uh, their whole, uh, you know, financial viability. Um, and so what we've done, another kind of innovative, cool thing, we've started uh, what we're calling a brucellosis compensation fund, and it's kind of like a private insurance pool. Um, and it's it's a three-year pilot project. We started it in January of this year, um, and any landowner in the Valley is able to participate in it if we're hoping we don't have to use it. But if there is an outbreak, we'll cover 50 to 75% of their quarantine costs. We're not going to cover 100% because we're economists and we don't want to create perverse incentives. So we want to incentivize them to still take all the measures that they need to to, you know, mitigate it on their end. Um, but if there was an outbreak, we could help them sort of shoulder some of that cost. And the reason why we want to do that is we want to increase elk tolerance. Just like with the grizzly agreement, we want to increase grizzly tolerance and still maintain that habitat. We want this winter range to remain for the elk. Um, and if if nobody steps up and starts helping compensate uh, for the conservation benefit that these landowners provide, they're gonna basically be eaten out of house and home. And there's so much development pressure in this area, and you guys as locals know that, um, and in Paradise Valley in particular, that they will eventually sell and that whole valley will be subdivided. And then there won't be any elk migration. So we've been working with conservation groups like the Greater Yellowstone Coalition who understand this issue and kind of share our perspective in, on this in particular, um, that you know it's worth 
if we want to see conservation done, we should pay for it directly and we should partner with these landowners. So instead of, you know, somehow mandating that they have to tolerate these elk, we're going to pay them to tolerate them and help their operation be more viable. Um, so it doesn't just get subdivided. And anytime any of those landowners in Paradise Valley want to let me on their land to hunt some elk, I'm more than willing <laughs> to volunteer my services. Yeah, I second that. Totally. Um, where, do, where do these funds come from? That are it's all so that whole the Bruce Lewis, the compensation fund was totally privately funded. Um, we partnered with um, uh, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the Spruance Foundation, and then Cradova, which is like a local tech company that you guys might know of. Hmm. Um, and then and we raised private capital by donation. So awesome. Yeah. And then the participants are also putting in. So yeah. They yep. have a, they have skin in the game. Yep. They That's do. That's really cool. Yeah. Mm hmm. What um, is that? Is that sort of the part of the elk occupancy agreement thing? That's a little bit different. Is that different? Um, yeah, that's a little bit different. That's uh, basically paying for habitat. So what we did there, we worked with another landowner in Paradise Valley. Um, same sort of issue. Elk's a problem, brings costs, risk of brucellosis. This rancher is also a, a cattle rancher. Um, and so what we did there, we set aside 500 acres of what was historic elk winter range. Um, and we did that by, and it was pretty cool. I got like, we got to go and remove the old fencing ourselves, which was super fun. And part of what they do is like they spool up all the barbed wire and they roll it down. There was super steep, uh, landscape there we were on and to get rid of the barbed wire, they just rolled it down the hill, which was pretty fun to watch. And nice. they'd yell like, watch out. And <laughs> you have to get out of the way of this ball rolling at you. But anyway, we removed Sounds this. Terrifying, it was, yeah. Kind barbed wire is scary. Like, <laughs> like, rusted oaky yeah. ball you, of death. <laughs> yeah. You definitely wanted to get out of the way. I just love their like, they were just great salt of the earth people. But anyway, mm. we removed the old fencing. We put in a mile and a quarter of uh, wildlife friendly fencing. So the cattle can't get through that. They're kept out of the winter range, but the elk can, they can hop over it. Um, so basically what we set aside this space exclusively for the elk. Um, and that particular rancher has, um, you know, they have outfitting on their land. So it, that was another incentive for them to want to get this type of work done. Um, but it, it helps separate the, the cattle and the elk. It maintain, maintains elk habitat. And because we help them build this fence, fences are expensive, um, especially wildlife friendly ones. Um, they were able to, that, that was the financial help that they needed to be able to tolerate, uh, the elk. So yeah, Super cool, cool, innovative projects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very creative. I like it. And again, private, private funds raised to do that. Yep. Yep. All private funds. Cool. Yeah. That's neat. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing some really interesting work. Um, if people want to learn more about perk, get involved, can they be involved in the rolling ball of rusted <laughs> death if they want to? Sure. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Check out perk.org, P-E-R-C.org. Um, and we have, um, if you're a researcher, we have some really great fellowships that we do annually. Um, we also have a really cool for younger folks that are like undergrads. We have a really cool uh, student summit that we put on every summer that has been, um, we've been doing that since the very early days. So it's been a couple decades and, um, we get really good feedback from it. So, uh, there's lots of different ways that you can get involved. Super cool. And where can people follow you and learn more about you on the internet? Yeah. Um, you can check out my Twitter, uh, cat J Dwyer, uh, is the handle. Um, and then, uh, which probably we'll put in the show notes, I would think. And then, um, I also have a podcast, which is a little bit on hiatus and we're not competition for you guys, but we have the whiskey bench podcast. So if you want to look that up, we've got some fun content. 
I think we just need to prod you to get off of hiatus and get get back. In I the know. Game. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's the goal. Awesome. Anything else before we wrap up, fellas? No, highly recommend Perk. Their their newsletter's great. Their all their research stuff is just uh, cutting edge, cool stuff uh, mm-hmm. that they do. And I've been following them for years, and it's really awesome to be able to feature you guys here. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com/slash Human Reaction Pod. 